0: This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. I'm really delighted to uh, host our distinguished guest tonight, Mason Engel. Uh, Mason is an independent author and filmmaker known for uh, outstanding contributions to the world of literature and film. Uh, his sci-fi novel, 2084, has achieved remarkable success with 35,000 or over 35,000 downloads. And we'll see in a moment, he's an amazing documentary filmmaker who has talked across the country about his work. Mason's short documentary, uh, The Books Tour, has received recognition and played at literary festivals in Miami, Brooklyn, Louisiana, and Portland, uh, and really features uh, his Interest around indie book stops, and so I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit tonight. And his upcoming project, uh, Books Across America, is a fascinating exploration of literature and travel. Uh, in this documentary, Mason embarks on a journey to all 50 states, which is amazing, reading 50 books, conducting interviews with 50 authors in 50 days.
1: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I, I hear some sympathy yeah. <laughs> in the audience. Thank you for that.
0: So uh, we'll talk a little bit about it tonight, but he, he chatted with amazing authors, uh, including the, uh, the Library of Congress, who we were just chatting about a little bit earlier, uh, James Patterson, Joyce Carol Oates, Ann Patchett, and many others. Um, so Mason, again, thank you for being here with us tonight. We'll, maybe let's just welcome you again with some applause.
1: <laughs> thank you.
0: So Mason was kind enough to provide us with just a short preview of his upcoming film and the work he's done, and so let's go to a, a short clip, and then uh, we'll.
2: Do you mind if I give a little bit of context before? Please, we yes. So the the first uh, 40 seconds or so is a, um, a shortened version of the trailer for that film that um, he's talking about, with traveling to all 50 states and doing the interviews. The second part of the video is a tour of the minivan that we use to travel <laughs> the country um, so you can live vicariously through us. And that, and then the, the third part of this video is a montage of authors answering the, the question that I asked at the end of every interview, which is, what would we lose in a world without books? So that's the, the overview of, of the three videos we're about to see.
1: Great. Thank you. We need to repack Chrissy the Chrysler. There's a lot of traveling. Long drives. 11 hours. 12 hours. Oklahoma. Iowa. Alabama. Vermont. Minnesota. Minnesota Massachusetts. Florida Tennessee, Florida. Tennessee. Arizona. Georgia. California. California. It's been two weeks. Three weeks. One month. On the road. We're all tired. Our bodies are shutting down. But everything's fine because today I uh, will be reading Speaking Bones. An American Pilgrim.
2: Bell. bell. And talking to. to, to Nico
1: Guess we should give a a little look around our noble steed. Chrissy the Chrysler, we began with a tattoo of our brand. This is where Nick usually sits. He's right in here with an obnoxious amount of hydration to ensure copious stops along the road. The passenger side for our trusty co-pilot. She organizes the entire production and can't clean the floorboard of her seat. This is the door we never open. It is the stack of flat book boxes that become this box, uh, which is a crew favorite because they're always... The door can... It can jam sometimes. The camera bag, batteries, sandbags. um, The book box... The book boxes are right here. several several books in hard hard cases for protection.. <clears throat> so that's the back. This is where I sit and read. So I've sat for 50 days with my legs around a backpack. And we thought it was important to show off the, the title of the film. So we put a, a logo on the roof.
2: Imagine we find ourselves in a world without books. We have no eBooks, audiobooks, paperbacks, hardbacks. In that new version of the world, that new version of America, what do we lose in that world? What will we lack as uh a culture, as a people.
1: If suddenly we had a world without books. Imagining a world without books. If we lose books, if literature disappeared, we would lose joy. We would lose connection. Your sense of of identity and self and soul.
0: Like losing part of our humanity.
1: This is humanity. There's a voice in all these books around us. So you're going to be missing the ability to live other people's lives. Books are empathy machines.
2: The loss of empathy would be the greatest loss.
1: Those things disappearing is a, obviously it's a profound destitution. You know, it's a prof- terrifying, horrifying, eviscerating. A world without books is it's an impossible world to imagine.
0: In general, I think is kind of deeply
2: indestructible.
1: You can burn them all day long and scream and yell about them. You could wipe out every book in existence. Stories will remain.
2: We really can't live without stories. It's
1: fundamental.
2: To our DNA, have to have, have to have stories.
1: That's what we are built of: our memories, our
2: beliefs, our loves, and our sorrows. Our stories. If I woke up one day and there were no books, then that would be the day the first book was written.
0: We are all a character in, in the novel of our own lives. We are stories
2: all the way down. You can't ever take it away from us.
0: Wow! All right. So I think there's a lot there to talk about, Mason.
2: Yeah, yeah. Th- th- we can start wherever <laughs> you'd like. I-, I thought that the three videos would give a nice picture of the trip, uh, an overview, and then a look at the crew behind the journey, because the journey itself is, is quite the story as well. Um, and that last montage really gets to the heart of what I wanted to talk about with the film, um, which is the the importance of stories and the power that they have in our lives.
0: Uh, so uh, maybe we'll start out by just you having you tell us a little bit about yourself, like what inspired all this? What inspired you to become a writer and a filmmaker?
2: Yeah, I, I wrote my first book as a senior in high school. Um, i had finished my soccer season senior year and had all this time after school and decided to write a book um, and then decided to dedicate that book to my girlfriend at the time as a way to ask her to prom. So that wow. was my my big <laughs> motivator to finish the first book, Um, and after that, it just became a habit. And I started writing, ended up self-publishing my sixth novel, which is uh, 2084 on Amazon, did the whole virtual promotion circuits. And when I felt like I exhausted the digital promotion opportunities, I came up with this idea to promote it in real life, to take this, my first 50-day road trip um, to, and the goal was to give away a copy of my self-published book to 50 different independent bookstores in 50 days. So it started as a a self-promotional trip. But on that journey, I just fell in love with independent bookstores and decided that um, I wanted to take a second road trip and not make it about me, but make it about the booksellers and interview them. So I I never had a moment where I decided to be a documentarian or to make documentaries about books. I just looked up one day and had a bunch of footage uh, and decided that that was my role. So that was my, my first film. It's a short documentary called The Bookstore. Um, and then uh, I started exploring different areas of the book world. The The question that sort of precipitated the first film was, why should we shop indie as opposed to Amazon? Um, but another important question I wanted to answer was, who, who's writing these books in the first place, and why are they writing them? As a writer myself, I know how difficult it is and how, unrewarding it can be. You'll toil for months in obscurity and then no one reads your work or or people don't like your work. But there are people who are obsessed with the act of writing and storytelling. So the second film called Story Road is about the origin stories of famous authors um, who have strange paths to success. So people like Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, um, who released chapters of the book as blog posts on his website. And eventually people got so annoyed with him for having to read blog posts to read the book, they're like, can you please just put it on Amazon? And he dragged his feet a little bit and said, fine, and put it up, uh, and the book exploded. Um, Christopher Paolini, who wrote the Aragon books back in the day, uh, self-published his books and sold them out of the back of his father's truck, dressed up in medieval garb, and would stand in bookstores for eight hours a day hand-selling his book. Um, And these are all crazy things, to do uh, for for something that for a light at the end of the tunnel that isn't guaranteed Um, so uh, through making that film i understood my own motivations for writing and i think of books across america as the third installment of this trilogy of bookish films which asks uh, a couple very basic questions about reading namely why do we read in a world where we have uh, a smorgasbord of options of entertainment easier sexier options that we can consume stories there are people who read and that's a curious thing to me and, and one of the the questions i wanted to answer with the film
0: wow wow that's amazing um i'm curious to hear more about uh like what you learned about bookstores in your in your first tour i mean bookstores they had their you know I mean their heyday when i was young and growing up and they they really went through a hard time right with it i mean amazon took over a lot of what bookstores did for a while. So yeah. are, are, books, are indie bookstores alive and well, from what you saw? They
2: are alive and <laughs> thriving. Yeah, weirdly, the, though it was a very difficult time for them, uh, the pandemic, it also catalyzed a period of growth. After we emerged from quarantine and isolation, we realized what we had been missing and, and what we uh, were lacking in that time. And that's something that bookstores provide, the connection and interfacing with, with people. Um, But through the course of making the film, uh, we addressed the the usual reasons people talk about for wanting to shop indie as opposed to your big box online stores. Um, And that has to do with keeping money in the economy and the face-to-face interactions. And all those are solid reasons uh, and, and important reasons. But the thing that I found the most compelling was the fact that indie booksellers just love selling books. Ones and zeros cannot love selling books. And I think if we support uh, those sectors of the economy that can keep people passionate about their work, we will have created a, a better world. And there are few people more passionate about their work than booksellers are passionate about books.
0: I uh, I mean, I, I don't know if any of you have seen uh, the bookstore uh, movie, uh, but when I was watching it, it was there were a couple of times when the book owners gave like a tour of the shop. They talked about how the shop was laid out and kind of just that experience of walking into it. And so that mm. that sense of like ownership and commitment to it, it really stood out.
2: That, that was one of the things that surprised me the most about the trip. You walk into a bookstore and you look around and you see thousands of books and you sort of take it for granted, or, or I do. But when when we were making the film, I asked how those books got on the shelves. And there's someone who chooses each one of the books according to what people have read in the past in their community and what's going on in the, the larger world. And it's curated. It's not like a you click a button on the big five publisher websites and they drop 10,000 books into your store. It's curated. And there's something about seeing being in a room full of, of choices, of decisions that someone has made for your benefits that is very comforting and very warming. And that's what you get in a bookstore. I think about
0: the big box booksellers that came along, you know, in the nineties, um, that changed that model a little bit. Um, go ahead.
2: Well, they, they, they upended the model. Um, but I think people realize it, It sort of identified two different sectors or multiple sectors of the market. If you're buying books, um, people who who love eBooks and you're buying just for the story and the book, and you want to spend as little money as possible on, the book, shop Amazon, and booksellers will say the same thing. But if you're looking for a little bit extra in that experience, that's something that the bigger box stores have never been able to truly replicate. Barnes & Noble, uh, they have physical locations, of course, but you can drop me in a Barnes & Noble in San Francisco, in Chicago, in London, in Indianapolis, and I will not know where I am. I'm in a Barnes and Noble. It's like being dropped in a McDonald's. And there's something very isolating about that experience that um, that's a problem that any bookstores don't have.
0: I don't know know if you've ever been to Warwick's here in uh, San Diego. I haven't. Um, So Warwick's is a local bookstore down in La Jolla. Okay. And uh, they, they host, I mean, authors on a daily, weekly basis, right? I'm seeing a lot of nodding heads. And I, what is amazing to me is I've never actually been able to get inside the bookstore for one of those author talks. I've always sat out on the sidewalk because it's so busy. And I think that it speaks to um, this role of the bookstore kind of in the community. It's a it's a, a part of the community experience. Um, and again, I mean, that stood out to me in, in that movie.
2: They they become hubs uh, in a world where we do a lot of our convening online or, or um, via Zoom it's important to have physical locations. Libraries are, are great physical hubs for that sort of connection. Um, but the, uh, what you said about not being able to get into the store for, for the events, it makes me think of a story that Emma Straub told. She owns a bookstore in Brooklyn, also a, a very successful author in her own right. But she was talking about an event um, at Books or Magic, her bookstore, where it was so busy that people were spilling out onto the sidewalk and they had speakers playing the, um, um, like loudspeakers, uh, like projecting the the words onto, into the bookstore. But the only way you could hear that outside is if you pressed your ears to the sidewalk. (laughs) So it looked like, uh, she said, it looked like there were 20 people outside of her shop praying to hear this writer (laughs) speak. And that's so powerful.
0: Wow, okay. All right, that's an image.
1: Okay.
2: Um, Only in Brooklyn.
0: Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the team. You, you obviously didn't film all this yourself. You had a couple of folks with you. What, wh- how, what made you, or how did, how did you get to convince them to go along?
2: Yeah, well, the, the team has, has changed over the course of the, the trilogy of films. So the bookstore was me and a, a cameraman intern who was a sophomore at Purdue at the time. So uh, he couldn't even drink, and I was driving him around the country and having him point his camera at booksellers. Um, the second uh, for Story Road, I, that was a revolving door of people that I worked with. There was one occasion when we interviewed Christopher Paolini. He lives in a, a somewhat isolated part of Montana, and there was no easy way to fly. Wherever I was flying to, I was going to have to drive like three hours. So I ended up flying to Salt Lake City taking my cousin's car, driving that to Idaho, picking up a cameraman and then driving to Montana to film the interview. Um, And I say all that to make the next statement seem a little less crazy. For Books Across America, it was two weeks before we took off. We started the trip January 12th and ended on March 2nd. That was our 50-day window. And um, around Christmas, I didn't have a crew. I had all the interviews scheduled and lined up and I didn't have a cameraman or a driver or a van. Um, So I was interviewing people off of Craigslist and and Facebook and Zoomed with some guy who had a camera and seemed qualified. He was very qualified and we talked a couple of times, but uh, I met them on Facebook and on Craigslist.
0: That's like a whole nother level than finding your roommate on Craigslist, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if if you lock yourself in a van with two crazy people for fifty days, that's going to be really tough. And they, uh, I should mention that they uh, were a couple; they were boyfriend and girlfriend on the road, which is a, a risk of an entirely different sort.
0: <laughs> I, so, um, uh, your your second movie, Story Road. I mean, we just saw a clip where we talked about like, uh, you know, what would happen with a world without books. And you and I talked a little bit about just the uh, compelling experience of storytelling. And so I wonder if I could just invite you to riff on what storytelling means to you for a moment.
2: It means to me. Um, I think it means to me what it means for the, the authors we talked to in the film. Um, but toward the end of that film, uh, I asked Andy Weir and Hugh Howie and, and Chris Bellini and Nedia Core for why they write despite all of the, the difficulty. And it boiled down to a very simple response, which was, I just want to tell stories. Uh, Christopher Paolini is worth forty million dollars. Has sold millions and millions of of books, and he's sitting in a chair in this tiny little bookshop with me and some guy picked up in Idaho on my drive to Montana, and we're we're just talking about fantasy books. He's like, I love Lord of the Rings. I love uh, the the Wizard of Earthsea and these these seminal books that he had read as a child, and and all of that. Just resulted in this compulsion for him to tell stories, and that's true of the other authors as well and that's That's something I'm still curious about huh. um because I think we all accept the importance that stories play as consumers um but the the second tier of being compelled to tell stories is a different thing for me um most of my most of my books I've written ten now, and I think the last one is is almost good. Um, uh, looking back on all of those, those stories are, are pieces of me or they're articulations of things that I didn't know how to articulate at the time. So I needed 100,000 words to say what I felt. Um, and, and I think that's the case for a lot of people who tell stories that are just trying to tell their own story.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean, uh, I remember uh, a few of the authors you interviewed in Story Road it was clear the stories had come from their experience and they were talking, they were you know, talking about themselves as much as they were talking about the stories they were telling. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the reading experience. I mean, like, why do you think reading is so compelling? You, you also pose that, right? We're inundated with information throughout our day, right? There's mm-hmm. so many sources of, of ways to consume information. So why has reading remained popular?
2: Well, I, I think before you can answer the question of why reading is, uh, why reading survives despite all these other options. You have to ask what we get out of stories uh, in general, uh, whether that's movies or or radio or theater. Um, And I think, uh, again, this is me speaking personally and trying to extrapolate to uh, a universal, but um, I seek completion in stories that I don't get in real life. We're socialized to, to think of our life story uh, and, and to view this three-act, five-act structure, and we, we see the American story, the American dream, and we hold that up against the story that we're living, and when those two don't match, we, we feel a dissonance. Or when something happens in our life, we have this quest that we go on, and we don't slay the dragon, or we don't get the girl, or, or whatever the, the resolution is when that doesn't happen. Uh, it, for me, at least, it's a feeling of, well, that's not right. <laughs> if I were writing this story... It would have ended a different way. And, uh, but sometimes it just doesn't. So reading um, and story, consuming stories in general allows you to find that, that closure that you don't get. So for books in particular, there's something very powerful, something uniquely powerful about them in that regard. Because uh, you can participate in the story in a way that you can't participate in a movie. Uh, And that means creating the story in your own head. It's not being projected at you, but you have to, the wheels in your head have to turn to create the story. And and by doing that, you're putting yourself in the story that has an ending, in the story that has closure. And you can experience that in a way that you can't just by watching it on screen. And it's also individualized. So you're not watching John McClane save the day. You're saving the day as the character that you're creating. So I think it's that the participatory nature of stories and uh, the individual nature uh sorry of books and uh, the individual nature of books that um that keep them unique and keep them relevant
0: oh that's i mean that's really interesting in uh in libraries we talk a lot about sense making and how you um internalize knowledge how you take in information and turn it into something that is is personal and understood and it like helps with memory it helps with teaching and all sorts of things uh, that come out of that um was that a did the authors you speak with have kind of a common concept around storytelling? Do they share your view or did you hear other views of this?
2: I, well, weirdly, I didn't ask. <laughs> you get into the editing room with these projects and you're going through the interviews and you think, you idiot, why didn't you ask that question? It took me the 50-day road trip and going through all the footage to realize the question that I should have asked. <laughs> um, so, so my challenge now as the filmmaker is to take these incomplete snippets hmm. of, of thoughts and, and forge them into something whole. So unfortunately, I didn't ask Joyce Carol Oates the questions that I wanted to ask or and any of these people, but they, they gave me enough to, um, to hint at the truth that, that I, I wanna reach.
0: Wow, I, all right, so, um, I mean, you just said that reading is this unique experience, and I, I totally agree. Um, and yet you, you've created incredibly compelling documentaries so how does that relate what's storytelling like in the documentary sense
2: yeah well well, first it it does seem odd that if if you're talking about the value of books write a book about it right but my goal is not to preach to the choir of book lovers i want to convert the i want to evangelize books and the only way you can do that is by tricking people into watching a movie (laughs) <laughs> about books so that's that's the real goal of the documentary and you cloak it in this very gimmicky thing a travel documentary a challenge documentary of 50 states and 50 days and and really i'm gonna make you love books um but but the act of of making a documentary is is so different from from writing a novel i was just thinking about this recently because i'm having a little bit of trouble doing it um in a book you, you can start with a character, you start with a premise, and you build out from there, and there's no budget constraints, and you can create whatever you need. In a documentary, uh, if you're shooting verite footage, you film what happens, and then you find the through line through what happens. In a project like mine, you start with a, a framework, and then you, you film the interviews, and then you have to find the story afterward. Um, So when I was first conceiving the the road trip, I knew there had to be some sort of pre-planned arc through the country. I couldn't just ask the same questions to 50 50 different authors and hope uh, I could come up with a story. So I had different focuses in, in the region. We were asking different questions. But I was so busy with the logistics of the road trip and emailing the authors and the publicists to set everything up that, again, this is getting very late in the process. And I realized I'm not really sure. I know I'm taking a road trip that's lasting 50 days, but what is the story? Um, and I was, I was alone in LA for, for Thanksgiving because I was too cheap to fly home to see my parents. And I just walked around the city for six hours thinking about the story um, and, and laying out the interviews in a way that I thought would tee up that story when I got to the edit. But now it, it's 70 plus hours of footage and 35 terabytes. So whatever thought went into the beginning um, is kind of irrelevant. You just have to work with what you have. So it's, it's a lot of puzzle making.
0: I, I'm, I mean, even overwhelmed, just hearing 70 hours of footage. How, how did you, how do you find a storyline through all that footage?
2: Uh, I'll let you know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I, so, you know, the other thing that I just was amazed with, um, was getting to see these authors up close that you Hmm. interviewed. Um, I think uh, somewhere in, in kind of one of the clips I saw, um it wasn't said exactly this way but like authors are real people and so i um i was just maybe could you reflect a little bit about like what you learned about authors you got to speak obviously with 50 of them more than that
2: yeah yeah so um uh, i'll start with a, a quick story about the fact that authors are real people we were in princeton new jersey filming around campus every place we would go to we would throw up the drone um jerome the drone is his name and, and get footage of the surrounding area just to provide some texture um, and some context for the interview. We're doing that in Princeton. And I checked my email and I got an email from Joyce Carroll Oates, who was our interview in New Jersey. And she said, hey, it's a little bit windier than I expected, and it's getting darker faster. Um, it, this is early February at this point. Um, and, and Joyce is getting up there in years. She's been around for a while. So she's like, can you pick me up before the interview? And I said, of course, Joyce, we'll absolutely pick you up. So my uh, assistant director drove Chrissy the Chrysler, who you met earlier, this pigsty of a vehicle <laughs> to go pick up one of the most legendary authors of our time because she's a person and she doesn't like to drive at night because she's, she's elderly. So that that drove the point home in a very cool way. Someone that I had read, and I got to drop her off after the, the interview. Someone I read in English class I could just have a conversation with.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, not about books, but it, it was cool to meet people that you would read. Because I, I would read the book. Um, so for, for Joyce, I read her memoir on writing. And, and I would read that book before the interview. And before talking to James Patterson, I read the latest Alex Cross novel before the interview. And Ann Patchett, I read her book of essays before the interview. So I spend anywhere from four to eight hours with the author through their book before the interview. And you establish these preconceived notions of what that person is going to be like. And I was wrong every single time. (laughs) Yeah, it it, it was cool to hear the author's voice. We talk about a writer's voice on the page. And then to hear their voice. and how different those two were. That was one of the things I noticed consistently.
0: That would be, all right, so that's fascinating. I think I'd be completely intimidated uh, if I read your book and then had to come interview you. Was that intimidating for you?
2: Yes, yeah, (laughs) it it was, um, especially having to read rather quickly. Um, There was one author, do you know uh, Tiari Jones? She wrote An American Marriage. It was an Oprah book club pick um, a few years back. And she is, I think, the the director of the creative writing program at, correct me, is it Emerson or Emory that's in Atlanta? Emory. Emory. Um, So a very, everyone got that one. Thank you. Um, Very prestigious, very smart woman writing about a a tough topic in mass incarceration and a love story woven through that. I have to read the book in six hours and and from scratch create an interview to ask her questions about the book. Um, And that was super intimidating. But my solution was to, to just get up early and spend 10 hours with the book while we're filming on the road and getting B-roll of the state sign and, and different things like that. So my, my solution was just to be as prepared as possible. But I, I was intimidated in a constant state of anxiety for 50 days.
0: <laughs> so there was this, uh, a great quote in Story Road that was, um, behind every book, there's an author, and behind every author, there's a love of books. Hmm. Um, I don't think I heard a single author you interviewed say, eh, this is okay. I could take it or leave it. I mean, I'm thinking of it a different career path. I think I, I actually, I think I even heard them say like, I would stick with this even if I wasn't going to sell a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and was that your read as well?
2: Yeah, there was uh, one part of the, the movie. I would do individual interviews with these famous authors. And then the other through line of the film was a, a writer round table where I got together with three aspiring writers in Los Angeles and just asked them about, their process and where they are and sort of juxtapose the, the journeys of these, these famous authors. And at the very end of that round table, I asked them, uh, I posed the scenario where their future selves would come back and tell them, hey, by the way, no one's ever gonna read your work. You're not gonna sell more than 200 copies. This just isn't gonna work out commercially. And, and I asked them if, if they would continue to write after hearing that. And universally, it, it, it's one, one clip, one cut, they, they go around the table and they say, yes, yes, yes. No explanation, as though it needs none. And I thought that was so much more powerful than someone trying to explain the compulsion to tell stories. It's just the fact. You ask why so many times until you get down to a root level, feeling something uh, about you as a person that's, that's tied to your soul, and they just say, yes, I tell stories.
0: Wow. I, uh, so something else I learned is that the pathway to becoming a successful author is a challenging pathway. Um, maybe I won't even ask a leading question there. <laughs> could, could you chat a little bit about like what some of these authors experienced, how they, how they became successful? And, and maybe, I don't know, if, did you meet an unsuccessful author?
2: Well, I, I have, I have plenty of experience even, yeah. with unsuccessful authors, being one, I would consider. <laughs> um, but uh, talking to uh, talking to, to Paulini and, and Andy Weir, Hugh Howey and Nettie Okorfor, that was the big four. Nettie had the most traditional path. She got an agent and then got published, won a bunch of awards, and then became a bestseller. It's funny how you win awards first and then become a bestseller. That, I think that's telling in some genres. Um but for those uh, for the three guys they sort of stumbled into success and it wasn't a a consistent formula that we saw across the three of them which was a little disheartening for a type a person who likes to hack success and, and finds rules and formulas and and clear paths um so that that for me was an awakening because it's it challenged my motivations for writing uh I found myself being disappointed in the fact that success can for many people be sort of random Um, and i realized that i was placing more importance on that than the writing itself Mm. which i think people can feel if you're reading a book uh, you don't want to feel like you're being sold to or like you're a member of the market that is being gamed for someone else's success you want to feel someone's love for a story and and if you're too focused on the the commercial aspects then then you lose that love. So it's, it's like, I, I'm a big Harry Potter fan, so it's like uh, looking into the mirror of Erised. You can only get the Sorcerer's Stone if, if you want it not to use it. It feels like that for writers. You can only write a great book and sell a million copies if you don't care about selling a million copies. You just want to write a great book.
0: <laughs> okay, that's, a, <laughs> that's hard to live up to, I guess. Um, I one of your uh, One of your authors, I forget which one, Talked about like the role of Amazon, and in the role of Amazon, like uh, going viral. And so I'm just curious is that is that still a, is that a more universal experience, or was it truly that person was just really lucky?
2: Yeah, I actually tried to. That's why I connected with Andy Weir initially. Uh, about a year after he released The Martian, um, and the movie got made, I. I researched his path and saw that he had released he had built up a following on his blog and then released the book on his blog and then took it to amazon and that felt repeatable to me Hmm. you build up a following you release and you promote really hard and then you you blow up and matt damon is in your movie it (laughs) seemed very simple so i emailed him and said hey andy uh how many blog followers did you have when you started releasing chapters of your book and he said three thousand i said okay great, let me get 3,000 blog followers and I'll become a famous author. And that was my whole goal with 2084. I started with a, a short story version of the book to build an email list. I kind of left the short story with a cliffhanger to get people to subscribe, to to read the rest, um, and then built up a, a large following, released the book, and lo and behold, Matt Damon does not know who I am. <laughs> because- not yet. <laughs> Because it's it's not, it it isn't a formula. So the going viral on, on Amazon, Wool, if you guys have seen Silo on Apple TV, that's a, an adaptation of the Hugh Howey book, Wool. Um, he went viral. He just posted a short story on Amazon, and it got thousands and thousands of, of downloads for no real reason. Fifty Shades of Grey is another example. Um, there's probably a clear reason for why people downloaded that book. But <laughs> there's... The, the short answer is no there's not a clear way to to hack the amazon algorithm it just seems to to pick people at random
0: huh and has, has all of that changed how authors write i mean is the you know amazon and the internet and social media and kind of this this self-promotion aspect is is it different now or am i just like seeing a technology instance of a, a continuum that's been around for a long time
2: to a certain extent i i think so but for authors, it has changed things. If you want to be an independent author and make money on Amazon, there are things that you do. You can't guarantee that you'll go viral, but if you write books in a series, if you write shorter books so you can write more books, if you make the first book free and get people started on your series, they'll pay for the rest. If you pay for ads, and you, you so the, the author now um, is his or her own publisher and has to do Uh, the promotional aspect so i I think for the writer it's it filters a different sort of person uh, and and enables um, it incentivizes um, different kinds of people to succeed because not only do you have to write good books you have to be a good marketer you have to be tech savvy you have to be all these other things Um, so i think it's the the market of writers has sort of bifurcated into the the self-publishing folks who can wear all of the hats and the um, the old guard who just want to write and be published by the publishers and let them do all of that. So it, it's it's definitely shaken up the publishing world. Um, but there, there are great stories that come out of self-published authors. I self-publish, so I have to say that. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it, it's shaken things up.
0: I mean, yeah, the, the notion of self-publishing, I mean, that's not purely a digital phenomenon right i mean you could self-publish in the print world yeah um, and many folks do um, it's interesting how self-publishing is a little more normalized now right it's it's uh, being with a publisher is not necessarily that kind of stamp of approval that guarantees success the way i mean the way i think it may have used to be perceived
2: yeah uh, what speaking of hugh howie he was um i believe the first person first traditionally published author to broker a deal with his publisher where the publisher owns the, the print rights and he owns the ebook rights <laughs> because he just knew he was better at promoting his ebooks than the publisher would be. And that's become more common if, you have, if you're a heavyweight in publishing, you can um, negotiate for your ebook rights. And there are people like Brandon Sanderson, a famous fantasy author who we interviewed in Utah who will do a certain number of books per year with his publisher and then self-publish a book or, or the next book in a certain series that he does. So there's this hybrid approach that people are taking now to maximize their book sales. And and it's a valid approach. People are doing very well with it.
0: Wow. All right, so uh, we've definitely saved some time for all of you to ask questions of Mason's. I think we have a couple uh, mics that we'll bring out. Maybe if I could just ask one last question. I mean, you've chatted with tons of people. Mm -hmm. Was there like a favorite interview or an interview that just really stands out you'd like to share with us?
2: I I have multiple favorites. uh, I'll, I'll give two. One was with uh, a poet named Kaveh Akbar in Iowa City, Iowa. He's a, a professor of poetry at the university there. And after reading, this is one of the, an example of of my mismatch of perceptions. But um, after reading his book of poetry, which was stunning and very thoughtful and very rhythmic and very intelligent, I expected this very. Um, like old school professorly type who and i know there are a lot of professors in the room i'm not saying this is a (laughs) a bad thing this is just what i expected um i expected him to be uh a certain way and he walked in like this goofy guy just asking us about the trip and smiling It, it and he said something that that really stuck with me stuck with me which was uh thank you Thank you for interviewing me. I think you're making something very important. And I'm just so grateful to be a part of it. This was like day 14 for us. And, and no one had said that yet because I'm too busy thanking the authors. We're talking to to Kristen Hannah and James Lee Burke and legends in their genre. And I'm saying, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And he was the first person to say, I'm just so grateful. Hmm. And that was, that was awesome to hear. Another favorite was Ken Liu in Massachusetts. Uh, he's a, a Hugo Award winner and probably the smartest human I've ever talked to in real life. Um, but he, he spoke very intelligently, I thought, about the American story and, and how there is not an American story, um, how we cannot uh, agree on a certain thing that is America, but we're a spectrum, uh, and, and we can exist as such, and the power of books is that they can represent different niches of that spectrum and allow us to experience the different American stories uh, so we can cohere as Americans. And the way, the way he said that, um, I come back to his interview as I look for the story and hmm. the documentary and the edit.
0: Wow. All right, that's amazing. All right, let me uh, turn to all of you. Could you talk about uh, generational differences in terms of reading both authors and readers, and what do you think the impact long ranges of eBooks? And I also enjoy audible versions of books, especially those read by the authors. You know, I get another um, dimension to it when I'm reading and also listening at the same time.
2: So uh, about the different mediums and the, the different generations and how people tell stories, Uh, I've asked this to, uh, I asked a version of this question to the authors we talked to on the road about the value of print books. And and of course, being authors, many of them are in love with the physical objects. But there were plenty who said, and Ken Liu was, was one of them, he said, I don't really care where you're reading. If you're reading long form story threads on Twitter, or or on these different apps that pop up as different modes for consuming stories, that's cool as long as you're reading, as long as you're partaking in stories. Um, as for the the generational gap, uh I think that's I mean it's a tough problem and I would call it a problem. But the the young adult genre is one of the uh, the most consistent uh, and fastest growing parts of the publishing industry. Of course, there are non um, there are non young non young people. Is that the politically correct <laughs> way me. of saying <laughs> who read in that genre? But there there's also a clear sign that young people are continuing to pick up books. Um, so there's a tendency now to to catastrophize in general, but to catastrophize around books. I don't think it's as dire of a situation as people make it out to be, which is very heartening. Um, And and authors, generationally authors approach the the challenge differently. If if you're a younger author, you're more likely to be on TikTok and so forth, which is great because they're reaching the people on TikTok who are largely young people and are bringing them to books. So as long as we as authors can adapt to the, the market, I think we'll continue bringing young people to read it.
0: Thank you. I think we have one over here.
2: I'm just curious about the mechanics. How many hours were you driving, and how many hours were you sleeping? <laughs> <laughs> we, we drove more than we slept. So the, the average, this was the fun part for me. I was a math major at Purdue. So the, the first challenge of the trip was an optimization problem geographically, how to get to all 50 states in the least amount of time and, and miles. Um, so the, the average amount of driving is about six to eight hours a day, five to eight, a little more generous. And the, the longer driving days were in the Pacific Northwest, where you just have big states. There's no optimizing you can do that can get you across Montana faster. Um, so about five to eight hours of driving per day. Um, one, one, one detail about the, the driving I was looking forward to getting to the Northeast because I knew we would have less driving. You go from Connecticut to Rhode Island and it's been 30 minutes. I thought that'd be a a good thing. But I did all of my reading on the road in the van when we're going from place to place. And Nick, my camera guy, loves Jerome the drone and wanted to get as much cool footage because that's his job. So we would do more B-roll in the Northeast because we had more time in each place we went to. Which gave me less reading time which meant i had to stay up later and get up earlier to finish the books um which is my segue to the sleeping question uh about three to five hours a night which was the the hardest parts because it's a hard trip to begin with you do that on an empty tank uh it it just gets a lot harder wow That,
0: that would be tough all right yes I am from uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, back then, 1950s, we had this big scandal of pay for play for the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and what have you. What have you found with Amazon for advertising and, and advertising or controlling the book
2: sales? So it, the, there are a couple of different angles to the, the question. The first is Amazon and its ad structure has allowed authors to uh, authors of means to immediately appear higher in the search rankings. If you throw a bunch of money at advertising, then people are going to see your book, more people are going to download it and it, it's just reinforcing the the same cycle. So, uh it's Amazon has widened the the disparity between authors, successful authors and aspiring authors which in general i think is a bad thing because it de-incentivizes new authors to enter the market um, as for how that affects the the larger landscape of publishing and the um like the big five publishers and their relationship with the market that's something that i i don't know as much about um, but there's a, a gentleman actually a bookseller in kansas who wrote a pamphlet called how to resist amazon and why that's, um, that goes very deep into that. That pamphlet was actually what catalyzed my interest in independent bookstores. Um, so I, I don't have a great answer for you, but it is a great question.
0: Um, in hindsight, on your calculating your route and just the logistics of it, and I understand that 50 authors in 50 days is a very uh, great hook for marketing and all of that, but in hindsight... Do you kind of wish you'd done 50 authors in 100 days? Number one. And number two, what if you had done your route in reverse? Do you think the sequence of interviewing people would have made a difference?
2: Uh, Yeah, it it would have changed everything. First, it would have changed the questions that I asked, um, because I knew we wanted to end on on a certain note. but I'm so glad we did it the way we did because our our, our final interview in the continental United States was Lee Bardugo, uh, who writes the Ninth House books and the, the Grishaverse books, now a Netflix show. And she, she spoke very philosophically about reading and the act of reading in a way that no other author had. And if we had opened with that, it just, it wouldn't have made sense. So there's so much about the trip that, um, like, I, there are those moments when I'm watching the footage and I think, why didn't I ask that question? But there are other moments when I think, oh my gosh, I know I'm not a genius, so this must be luck because things are just falling into place in the, in the right way. So changing the sequence would have changed all of that. And I've completely forgotten your first question.
0: <laughs>
2: oh, yeah. Uh, yes, my, my crew already wants to do Nick and Olivia, uh, the happy couple, still a happy couple, by the way. Um, they they're suggesting we do another trip another 50-day trip around europe this time 50 countries in 50 days and i say this is again we're skimming the surface it would be nice to spend uh like a week in each place so we could spend uh we have 52 weeks in a year two weeks off and we spend a week in each state we could go a lot deeper and i think that would be a lot of fun my hope is um to, to, after this film, produce uh, a documentary series that's kind of a parts unknown for the book world. And to do something like that, we would have to spend more time in each place.
1: Again, this is an issue regarding logistics.
2: How did you figure out 50 authors and which books to read? And how did that all get put together? I can see that maybe there were authors that you would have liked that weren't available. How did that work? I, being a math guy and being from Purdue, I have very techie friends. So my first step in selecting the authors was to pull from the New York Times bestseller API, their, their database, and have this monster list of authors who are bestsellers. Because speaking of the, the marketing gimmick, we knew we needed the James Patterson's and the Ann Patchett's and the so forth to attract people to the film. So after having this list of popular authors basically um, I hired someone to find out the state of residence of each author, and then the the number of reviews of their most popular book on Amazon, and then we could filter by popularity of state. Um, and then you also have different characteristics to take into account being demographic, uh, sexual orientation, you want a very representative slice of the country and the authors. So the the short version of the the answer is it was weighing a lot of different variables and trying to prioritize which people to ask. And after being rejected by one, two, and three people in a certain state, continuing to maintain the balance that, that I was going for initially. So it was, it was, again, fun for a math mind, but definitely a, a big challenge at the outset.
0: Wow, that's impressive.
2: Go boilermakers. <laughs> boiler up. <laughs>
1: um, obviously not all of the authors were best sellers, not all not all of the books were best sellers, some better than others. Um, did you find that you liked the best selling books better?
2: And were there some characteristics of the best selling books? that made them bestsellers? Hmm. My favorite book from the road trip was not a bestseller. Um, it was from, a, from an author who, who was not yet a bestseller, Michael Ferris Smith in Mississippi. He, uh, his most recent book is Salvage This World. It's about a, a war-torn um, piece of Mississippi and Louisiana and this Gothic paranormal Southern mystery. Which is nothing close to what I read normally, um, but but I, I did notice a difference in his writing um, with regard to the voice, because it, picking up a, a, a standard best-selling mystery, say, though there are different best-selling mystery authors, their voice their voices are all pretty similar, in my opinion. Maybe that's just me not being well read in mysteries, but they seem similar and and michael's book at the end of the first page i knew i was reading an author i never read before and it's like going into an indie bookstore and and feeling the uniqueness as opposed to being in a big box store and, and feeling um and not feeling that so the uniqueness of the voice was the the biggest difference for me and the the biggest consistency that i noticed across the best anything that you noticed that would make a book the bestseller any characteristics uh, if i could answer that question i would have a bestseller <laughs> um, so, so no not yet but i'm still looking
0: uh, well mason it has really been a pleasure uh talking with you tonight i was really your work is amazing and we really look forward to seeing your next movie when it comes out
2: well thank you and thank you everyone for coming and um thank you for reading
0: yeah.